Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Listen to amazing and bizarre science sneak up and hijack your brain like a ninja. I'm Dr. Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature neuropolitics, drought-resistant plants, and there's something about poo. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. <laughs> Beautiful plumage, not in Chernobyl. The Chernobyl nuclear disaster hit birds with reddish plumage especially hard. A certain type of red plumage colouring, pheomelanin, requires the use of a chemical called glutathione. Glutathione also happens to be essential for the neutralisation of reactive oxygen molecules. And reactive oxygen species are part of how radiation does its damage to you. So by dumping lots of glutathione into pretty-looking feathers, birds leave themselves at greater risk of radiation damage, and you end up with fewer and fewer red birds in Chernobyl. In recognition of Global Handwashing Day, October 15th, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine did a survey of the hygiene of the locals and came up with disturbing results. 95% of those polled said they washed their hands whenever possible. However, when examined, one-sixth of their phones were found to be contaminated with gut bacteria. Or, as London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine reported, one in six mobile phones in the UK is contaminated with faecal bacteria. I find the most disturbing fact about that is that they actually need an annual day to remind them to wash their hands. It's global hand-washing global day. Global hand-washing day. We all need day. to be reminded. Ah, okay, apparently. Fair enough. Emotions are modulated in ways that may increase the probability of goal achievement. Note the authors of a paper entitled When Pooping Babies Become More Appealing, The Effects of Non-Conscious Goal Pursuit on Experienced Emotions. Women were primed with thoughts of motherhood and then exposed to images that were generally rated as gross. Those images involving children, or, as the authors put it, goal-relevant stimuli, for example, pictures of babies with runny noses, were rated as less disgusting after the priming, an effect that was moderated by the participant's location in their menstrual cycle. Break out the emergency backup crow. A bird with a name like carrion crow might conjure morbid images, but Corvus caroni caroni apparently forms healthy social groups that collectively raise the offspring of the breeders amongst them. The lazy crows in the group will frequently ignore their duties and not visit the nests. Researchers now know why the group keeps those slackers around. They're the emergency backup crows. When the researchers clipped the wings of the more productive group members, the previous non-contributors swung into action and picked up the feeding slack. This hallucinogen really does open a door in your mind. Lots of cultures have adopted hallucinogens 
as part of magic or religious rituals due to the drug's reputation for mind-opening powers. Researchers at Johns Hopkins gave some subjects a single high dose of psilocybin, the active ingredient of hallucinogenic mushrooms. Although most personality traits are pretty stable at the test subject's age over 30, the authors found that a number of traits were altered by the drug. The study looked at five broad domains of personality. Neuroticism, extroversion, openness, agreeableness and conscientiousness. People who had mystical experiences during their psilocybin session found that openness remained significantly higher than baseline for more than a year after the session. The findings suggest a specific role for psilocybin and mystical type experiences in adult personality change. The authors associate openness with aesthetic appreciation, imagination and creativity. Mind-altering indeed. Anyone you don't like is just whining. Alternatively, if you want better pain management, be nice to the hospital staff. So say the results of When You Dislike Patients, Pain Is Taken Less Seriously, published in the Journal of the International Association for the Study of Pain. A small study population were given pictures of a set of patients associated with short notes describing them. Some of these were fairly neutral, while others, egoistic, hypocritical or arrogant, were decidedly negative. They were then shown videos in which these same patients acted out various levels of pain. The people who had negative notes attached to their profile were consistently rated as being in less pain, and the subjects had a harder time making relative judgments about their pain. In short, if you are a pain, you're more likely to be left in pain. Invisible mouse brains. One of the challenges of making images of biological samples is that a lot of the interesting stuff goes on deep inside the sample. It's possible to use a combination of toxic organic molecules to turn tissue transparent, but these tend to kill off any fluorescent proteins or molecules that are labelling the cells. As a result, it's really tough to get deep, three-dimensional images of biological structures. Fortunately, Japanese scientists have solved this problem by creating a water-based material that turns tissue transparent without harming any of the molecules used to label them. To demonstrate the power of their technique, they've released an image of a transparent mouse embryo. The Tasmanian tiger, or thylacine, once the largest marsupial predator in Australia, wasn't doing too well when Europeans arrived down under. But they certainly didn't help matters, placing a bounty on the animals, in part because they were thought to kill livestock. Now that it's too late, scientists have finally exonerated the thylacine, showing it had nothing like the jaw strength of the Tasmanian devil, and spotted quoll, two of the remaining apex predators amongst the marsupials. Given the fact that the thylacine's skull wouldn't allow it to take down large prey, the authors think that eating a sheep was well beyond its abilities. The bounty that led to Tasmanian tiger extinction was probably motivated solely on the fact that they looked a bit like striped wolves, and not from any real reports of them killing sheep or cows. Some diseases are inconvenient only in the modern world. Adermatoglyphia is commonly known as immigration delay disease. That's because individuals with this disorder fail to develop fingerprints. Researchers have now identified a gene that causes these immigration delays and found it has a global effect on RNA splicing, which would normally kill you, but it's only expressed in the skin. Having a dermatoglyphia might also delay your processing after being arrested. 
And now some quick discoveries from Buzzle.com. Love and obsessive compulsive disorder are the same. Donatella Mazzazitti, Alessandra Rossi, Giovanni B. Cassano and Love and obsessive compulsive disorder are the same. Research has discovered that romantic love and severe obsessive compulsive disorder are biochemically similar. Their research revealed that the psychological dimension shared by both these conditions demonstrated common neurological changes. The 5-HT system used in both romantic love and obsessive compulsive disorder. Think about that the next time you see someone fall in love. Talk about being madly in love, although slightly less mad perhaps than being in love with baby poo. Just a bit. Roller coaster rides could be good for asthma. In 2006, Simon Reitveld and Ilja van Beest, both hailing from the Netherlands, discovered that various symptoms of asthma can be cured by resorting to a roller coaster ride. Their study revealed that positive emotional stress, which one experiences during the roller coaster ride, tends to interfere with dyspnea, difficulty in respiration, and eases this symptom. I don't know about you, but I don't find roller coaster rides to be a positive emotional stress. Well, definitely not for me, considering my last, my first and last experience on a roller coaster put my neck out and I couldn't move it for two days. So I guess you could say I was distracted from my asthma for that time, but I don't really consider that to be a very positive experience. Maybe something uh, more intense but pleasurable might be equally good. Muzak stimulates your immune system. In the 1990s, Carl Chanetsky, Francis Brennan and James F. Harrison discovered that listening to Muzak, that is, recorded background music played in public places, tends to stimulate the human immune system and thus helps in prevention of common colds. They discovered this in the course of their investigation of the effects of music and auditory stimulus in the immunoglobulin A, IgA, in the human body. I don't know, but I reckon it doesn't matter how much music they play at the Royal Easter Show, I still think it's going to be a major breeding ground for cold. But isn't it good to know that playing music in those lifts is actually preventing the colds you would otherwise catch from all the thousands of people you share the air with? Well, you know, if you paid attention to International Hand Washing Day, then it's probably less of an issue. Oh, they're still going to sneeze and breathe and cough. Dog fleas versus cat fleas. In 2000, the trio of Marie-Christine Cadier-Gares, Crystal Jobert and Michelle Franck discovered that dog fleas jump higher than cat fleas. The study involved calculation of mean height jump of 50% of the flea specimen. The highest jump by a dog flea was recorded to be 25 centimetres, while the same by a cat flea was recorded to be 17 centimetres. I can tell you that there are no dog fleas in Brisbane, but there are cat fleas. And now from Popular Mechanics... Onions generate electricity. Gill's Onions in California produces up to 150 tonnes of peels per day. Rather than waste them, the company is now using the waste to run its processing facility. Engineers install machinery at the plant to grind and press the peels into 100,000 litres of onion juice. Yummo! This is fed into an anaerobic digester to produce methane that powers two 300-kilowatt fuel cells. The system also presses the solid remains into 20 tonnes of onion cake that the company sells as cattle feed. Those cows will eat anything. I wonder if the beef tastes better if the onion's built in. The company also expects the $9.5 million project, 
which earned the top award from the American Council of Engineering Companies to pay for itself within six years. And lastly, dandelion rubber. Scorned as a weed, the dandelion is potential source. Scorned as a weed, the dandelion is a potential source of natural rubber, according to scientists at the Fraunhofer Institute in Munich, Germany. The white liquid that seeps from a broken dandelion stalk is natural latex, but the sap has been no good for industrial use because it immediately begins to harden. The researchers identified an enzyme in the plant that causes this rapid polymerization and found that the sap can produce five times more latex if the hardening enzyme is chemically turned off. Dandelions might make an attractive backup as rampaging fungus attacks rubber trees in Southeast Asia, where the vast majority of the world's natural rubber is now grown. Left or right, apparently your political beliefs are reflected in the structure of your brain. Ian Wolfe explains. Our differences in politics between the right and the left may be disgusting. In the Public Library of Science, a paper was published called Disgust Sensitivity and the Neurophysiology of the Left-Right Political Orientations by University of Nebraska, Lincoln, political scientists Kevin Smith and John Hibbing. They concluded that disgust likely has an effect, even without registering, in conscious beliefs. Their sample group was 27 female and 23 male residents of Lincoln, Nebraska, with an average age of 41 selected from a larger pool of 200 people given lengthy political surveys. These people were shown a series of disgusting and non-disgusting images. Electrodes on their skin measured subtle conductance changes, a standard indicator of emotional response. People who identified themselves as conservatives or right-wing reacted with significantly deeper disgust than liberals or left-wing people. Feelings about gay marriage, an issue tightly bound to notions of purity, were especially predictive. The abstract of the paper reads, The role of disgust in the avoidance of disease, one of the primary sources of mortality over the centuries, makes it essential to survival. Numerous connections between disgust responses and social behaviour have been identified. The foundation for hypothesising a connection between disgust response and political behaviour, more specifically, is anchored in the groundbreaking work of hate and colleagues. On the basis of numerous large surveys, hate reports that people on the left make judgments primarily on the basis of two moral foundations, harm avoidance and a desire for fairness and equity. People on the political right, on the other hand, display similar attention to harm avoidance and fairness, but demonstrate additional concerns for purity, in-group loyalty and authority and structure. Interestingly, these differences in moral foundations hold up across cultures. 
a finding consistent with the work of Schwartz on cross-cultural similarity in the relationship between political orientations and patterns of values, as well as work on the relationship between political orientations and personality traits across cultures. This nuanced view of differentially weighted decision considerations is the basis for expecting people on the right to be more likely to emphasise purity and disgust as a foundation for moral and political orientations. Now, this reinforces an earlier study titled Political Attitudes Vary with Physiological Traits that showed that people in a group of 46 with strong startle reactions to unexpected noises and threatening images were more likely to be right-wing and support defence spending, capital punishment, patriotism and the Iraq war. Those with lower physical reactions to sudden noise or threatening images were more likely to support foreign aid, compassionate immigration policies, pacifism and gun control. The authors concluded, thus, the degree to which individuals are physiologically responsive to threat appears to indicate the degree to which they advocate policies that protect their existing social structure from both external outgroup and internal norm violator threats. The authors of the research into disgust and politics suspect people gravitate to the political convictions that fit their feelings. But feelings could also be shaped by convictions. Neither is all-encompassing. Even if physiology influenced politics, it's not going to explain every difference in detail. Basically, they simply don't know which is the cause and which is the effect. The larger point they want you to note is that certain political orientations at some unspecified point become housed in our biology with meaningful political consequences. So politics is biology and biology is politics. And while this might seem to mean that partisan differences are deeply rooted in brain structure, the opposite could be true. Acknowledging the role of biology could mean appreciating that people who disagree with us may not simply be bad or stupid, but influenced by different and ingrained habits of mind, as are we. But maybe, with the right influence on their brains, they could change their mind? Just look at famous left-wing commentators like Christopher Hitchens, who switched from left politics to right while maintaining a clear and lucid explanation of why he thinks what he thinks. Could his illness have been one of the influences in this change? I don't think that the research will make us more tolerant of someone with exactly opposing views, but it will allow us to better understand the people whose worldview we disagree with, so we know better what to expect from them and can bargain for better compromises based on understanding what is really important to the other side and to ourselves. And here I thought that we could keep politics out of science. Or maybe it's more that science is in politics. Thank you, Ian Wolfe, for that enlightening piece on neuropolitics. Left or right. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network into Sydney on 2SER 107.3 and over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Our intrepid scientific reporter Mick Cabazzini spoke to Dr Jim Hasselhoff about the genetic modification of crops to be drought resistant and the positives and negatives of this manipulation. In the case of drought stress, for example, uh, you have um, proteins like dehydrins, classes of proteins, which are induced, which are um, uh, essentially have a role to replace water in some senses. 
and they again it depends on the plant so you'll find some often primitive plants or particular specialized plants like resurrection plants which can tolerate extreme desiccation so they do this by virtue of producing proteins which have particular surface residues or groups which act and behave like the polar groups of water and so they fill their cells with these molecules which act to replace water as it's desiccated and as a consequence in this very extreme case you've got resurrection plants that can be dried down to uh, essentially crispy critters if you want to call them that and that on rehydration these uh, are displaced and the um, plants come, essentially come back to life and hence the name resurrection plants um, and many um, uh, lower plants uh, like liverworts and mosses for example have these kind of extreme uh, uh, ability to tolerate these extreme stresses where they don't have a sophisticated approach to managing water balance as higher plants do which is quite interesting because you have clear opportunities for resurrecting some of those no pun intended, resurrecting some of those properties and bringing them into higher plants to increase uh, drought tolerance uh, they, they cost a little and you have yield losses on the order of like 10% if you express this conditionally, uh, I mean constitutively. But if we can work out some way of uh, applying logic to, you know, some kind of environmental sensing logic to only trigger these things when they're required, they have quite a lot of uh, prospect for improving drought resistance of, of higher crops. Um, in Australia, we're particularly sensitive about the introduction of non-native species that take over certain ecosystems. And people have legitimate concerns that, about GM crops that might trade their resilience on with other species and create super weeds. What are your views on the effectiveness of the preventative measures that are currently in place about GM crops? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's two issues here. So one is exploration of the technology, so the, the lab-based work. And so since 1975, there's been a series of conventions that have been established and um, mean that no one in the Western world certainly can do any uh, transgenic experiments in the laboratory, you know, with no intention of any release, but even just research uh, without permission. So I think in that respect, the exploration of the technology is all already being done in a constrained way. Um, in terms of taking whatever comes out of that research, and if there are things which might be applied in the field, I think at this stage we're still quite early in the, the development of the technology, but the first generation of crops essentially are single gene traits, or at least traits that it can be stacked, and each, each trait involves either, for example, a form of herbicide resistance or a form of um, insect resistance. But there was a bit of controversy in the UK um, several years ago about um, rapeseed and... Mm. Yeah, they were cl close relatives of rapeseed, which grow in and around existing uh, rapeseed crops. So, from from your, um, apart from the regulation aspects, do you think that having buffer crops around around your GM crop are enough to to prevent this kind of contamination? Well, it's, it's probably, to be honest, hard for me to give a uh, a. a, a a very reliable estimate on this. I'm, I'm a research scientist rather than agronomist and I think a lot of these questions come down to practice, agronomic practice and, um, and that, that's work that is in progress and that's the reason why you need field trials to, to deal with. But uh, 
I think the, the, the point I was trying to make before about some of these early first generation crops, the, the fairly limited character and the isolated nature of the character means it's easy to track that, that trait. So you can track whether it's spread to a weed, for example. And the potential for harm, even if the, the weed does, or a weed picks up a, um, um, a herbicide resistance gene, it just means it's resistant to a particular herbicide. So the, 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 the way that we can control it is fairly straightforward. Use another herbicide or use cultivation, for example. And you have to offset that with the potential benefits. And in the case of herbicide resistance, you have potentially great environmental benefits with the availability then of no-till agriculture. And of course, most of the, one of the major issues of, of uh, disruptions caused by human agriculture is land tilling and uh, susceptibility to erosion and loss of topsoil. I mean, I think that the promise here of the technology move far beyond this if you can properly regulate and uh, make informed debate accessible here as well. Um, and this will change the balance of the debate, I think, to some degree, uh, as you've seen before in previous technologies. You expect people to um, view the benefits more positively when you actually see them. Once they become apparent, yeah. absolutely. That was Mick Cavazzini speaking to Dr Jim Hasselhoff about the positives and negatives of genetically modifying crops to be drought resistant. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. You can send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com and tell us your thoughts, feelings and stories. If you'd like to be on radio and you live in Sydney, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Mick Cavazzini and Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wandering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar.